looking back on 40 years of alternative music. It's the Roots of Alternative podcast with Jack and Dixon for 95X. Well, hello and welcome back to the Roots of Alternative podcast. This is our weekly look back on the last 40 years of alternative music as we see what songs define the year, the decade, and the legacy of this amazing genre and what a ride it's been. Dixon, how you doing, my friend? I'm good. How are you today, sir? I'm great. Uh, we just had some really great episodes, including that bonus episode on the Red Hot Chili Peppers, which was a lot of fun to do. And we, we learned a lot about you in that podcast, which was, it was kind of neat to uh, learn a little bit more about you, my friend. I'm still depressed. <laughs> Have you thought any more about, uh, you know, the stuff that we talked about since then? No, I've tried to block all of it out and just uh, focus on today. Just move on. And, and moving forward yeah. and not, you know, dwelling because I tend to dwell. Yeah, no, I'm the same exact way, and uh, that's that's not good to do. So, um, anyway, if you, if you haven't caught that episode, you you can by going up to our show page up at 95x.com/slash/roots-of-alternative, and while you're there, feel free to give us some feedback. We've gotten some amazing feedback uh, from you so far. Uh, if you haven't said anything yet, feel free to let us know what you're thinking about what we're doing. Uh, you know, if you got any suggestions on. Uh, some new things we could try, or if you just want to criticize us, that's totally okay too. Give us a shout out up on our page again, 95x.com slash roots of alternative and hit us up on Apple podcasts and Spotify. So uh, last week we talked 1993 and now we're going on to 1994. A lot of great stuff coming up in this year. Um, and, and I mean, it's, it's all music that uh, if you grew up during that time, you're familiar with. If you didn't grow up in that time, you're probably familiar with too. Uh, but before we do that, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, what happened in the year 1994 around the world because we like to get a historical perspective on what was happening in the world. And at this time, we're going to do that now and check out what happened around the world in 1994. <laughs> Yeah, we're kind of all over the place in 1994. A lot went on. It was the Winter Olympic Games in Lillehammer, Norway. Uh, in the tech world, Netscape Navigator was released. It quickly became the market leader for browsing the web. Java programming language was first released in 1994 from Sun Microsystems. Also, 1994, the very first genetically engineered tomatoes were available and approved by the USDA. Wow. Uh, and then... In political news, this was great. South Africa held its first multiracial elections after the end of apartheid. That was back in April of 1994. The election was conducted by the Independent Electoral Commission, which later became a permanent part of the South African electoral system after 1996. So there was some monumental political stuff happening, uh, including the Whitewater scandal. That investigation mm -hmm. began in 1994. Uh, and then you know, some of the stranger things like Major League Baseball being done in 1994 due to a 232-day strike by the Major League Baseball Players Association. Wait, what? Uh, yeah. Okay, I did not know that. I, I mean, I love baseball. I didn't know. Well, I was also four years old when that happened, so why would yeah. I? <laughs> yep, they, can't, they, canceled, they canceled that year's season due to the strike. 
Um, there was the Tanya Harding, Nancy Kerrigan incident where Tanya Harding paid that guy to hit the girl with the pipe and then they made movies and Tanya Harding made a really sketchy, awkward porno, I think. Okay, I have no yeah. idea what you're talking about. It's Olympic. It just, just, uh, there's, there's a movie that came out a couple years ago called I, Tanya. Watch that. It'll explain everything. All right. I'll, I'll take your word on it. Uh, let's see. What else in the weird? Lisa Marie Presley married Michael Jackson. And then in oh. the most tragic news of my generation, Kurt Cobain committed suicide. In oh, that was 1994. I did not realize that. Okay. I knew it was coming yes. up, but okay. But not to dwell, not to dwell on Kurt's suicide. Let's talk about some movies because 1994 was a very amazing year for movies as well with classics like the Shawshank Redemption, Forrest Gump, the Lion King. It's Christmas time. The Santa Claus was born in 1994, along with cult classics like Dumb and Dumber, Speed, The Mask, Pulp Fiction, and one of Jack's all-time favorite movies released in 1994, Star Trek Generations. Hey, how'd you know? I was just about to say that. <laughs> it's like you know me or something. And the funny thing I is, do. Too, I just watched The Santa Claus last week. Uh, as we are setting up the Christmas tree and getting everything all set. We got our tree a little earlier this year. We got it the week before Thanksgiving. So Thanksgiving evening, as we decorated, not only did we watch Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, but we also watched The Santa Claus and Elf, too. Got to throw that one in there. And for those of you that like thematic movies for holidays, I think we need to start a petition to make Dutch, the movie Dutch with Ed O'Neill, the official Thanksgiving movie of America. I have not seen that, but this is not going to be another diehard situation, is it? Where No, this is legitimately okay. about a, a bad boarding school kid whose uh, mother's new boyfriend, fiance, is uh, set to go pick him up from boarding school and deliver him home to his mother. And then, of course, all hell breaks loose on the trip. It's that definitive, like, sort of buddy comedy, learn a lesson, but... There's some great stuff in there. Ed O'Neill is one of the most underrated dudes of this entire acting generation, in my opinion. Well, does it take place on Thanksgiving? Or is it like... like it's like the three days leading up. It's, it's sort of like planes, trains, not oh, all. Okay. It's a let's get them home to Thanksgiving situation. Gotcha. Okay. So, I, I mean, so I got to ask then, is Die Hard a Christmas movie to you? Sure. Hey, man, it's 2020. Like, th this year has been so tremendously awful to everybody that if you want to hold on to that little bit of sliver of holiday spirit by watching Die Hard and calling it a Christmas movie, good for you, man. Like, good for you for finding something positive for yourself. I, I love your thinking, my friend. You, you are very forward thinking, and that is a, that is a great trait to have. <laughs> I try. <laughs> I, I, and the other, I don't know where I stand on that. Uh, discussion. I don't care. Die Hard's a good movie. Either way, you cut it. If you want to watch it at Christmas time, and you want to call it a Christmas movie, I'm with you. Let's call it a Christmas movie. And let's call that a wrap on the 1994. Uh, not just yet, though. We got to get into the music. Um, so much happened in the year of music in 1994, and let's get into it right now. Talking about all the big alternative hits in the year 1994. All right, man, as we begin 1994, I think this is the first time in this podcast that I've looked at the playlist and actually knew and could even sing back to you 
the majority of the songs on this list. There are so many huge songs that came out in 1994. It was a boom period for sure. I mean, 1994, modern rock radio, which I think is the predecessor to alternative radio, was the big hot thing. Uh, hair metal had been completely and totally swept off of the front page of everything. Uh, at this point, it was pretty much dead on the vine. And, you know, the the world was evolving at a rapid pace. And I, I think along with that came people's minds opening to a vast variety of different sounds. And this year's list, I think, definitely gives us an idea that while Alternative was probably still relatively rock-oriented in 1994, it was definitely starting to deviate down some sub-genre paths at the same time. Yeah, now, uh, the discussion about hair metal, uh, that, I mean, I, that, to me, in my mind, that just seems like it was like something that lasted a couple of years. But by 1994, it was pretty much dead. Dead. I, I would say it was pretty much dead in 92, 93. And right around the good, time Nirvana came out. Yeah, essentially. I mean, and that was where the, the big amount of animosity between Kurt Cobain and Axl Rose existed. Um, but, you know, I, I think the, the hair metal, glam metal, whatever moniker you want to give it, kind of started in the late 70s with the New York Dolls and, you know, a lot of the Sunset Strip bands that became the Scorpions and, you know, all of the earlier Striper, Twisted Sister that, that, that begat that early 80s period before it got so commercially, yeah, with the <laughs> Nelsons and the Poisons and the Slaughters and, and, the, and the stuff that was all style and no substance. Um, you know, the, the roots of this stuff, going back to the New York Dolls, the music wasn't bad. The, the imagery was a little strange for what it was at the time period. Uh, you know, because, it, you know, it, the, the, the late 70s, the idea of a dude in fishnets in a leather vest, you know what I mean? Like, it, it still wasn't the most over thing uh, to, to most of America. If you lived outside of, like, major metropolitan cities like New York or L.A. or Miami, like, that was still a very mind-blowing thing for you to understand or take in. So, uh, you know, now that we're in the 90s and, you know, cable TV had its full effective hold uh, and had for a while, um, MTV at this point was the tastemaker. It was, uh, I think, just as influential, if not more influential, than radio was at the time. Uh, we're in the very early stages of reality television. Um, you know, um, American pop culture was most definitively starting to evolve and change. And I think people were ready for some honesty and something different, something that wasn't just a cookie cutter version of something they had already heard. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But I, th I think that's my perspective on 1994, and we can probably dive right into the music. Well, I know some of these bands on here I, I, are some of my favorites. I mean, we're talking uh, Counting Crows, Oasis, uh, who I, I think this was their first album, definitely, maybe, came out in 1994. Um, and then another band that, okay, I never heard this song until a few years ago and when we started playing Alternative on 95X. But I absolutely love Zombie by the Cranberries. And I love her. And I, her voice is so unique. 
And when I was listening to this playlist, I went, okay, I've had that song stuck in my head for like the last four days. (laughs) It's just such a great song. And I don't really know much about that band. Um, Well, I think the Cranberries got a lot of notoriety over the last few years due to a couple of things. The first, of course, being, uh, I think the name of the band was Bad Wolves, did a cover of Zombie that was kind of like a dumbed down butt rock that I don't know, have another way to put it, a uh, modern adaptation via metal. I don't know. I don't like that style of music. I don't have a lot of respect for it, but um, that brought the Cranberries some recognition. Um, and of course the, the thing that instigated it was Dolores taking her own life. Um, and, you know, yeah. So as you can tell, I have a little animosity because I feel like despite the fact that Bad Wolves made uh, a very public statement saying that they were donating part of the proceeds from that single sales to a foundation for Dolores. It was still opportunistic of them at that time to do that. In my opinion, I, I just felt like it was, it was dirty. It, it didn't feel right. And I didn't like it. And I'm going to hold that against them for their entire career. And I don't care. Well, regardless of whatever happened, the song was huge in, in 94 and still The is original today. is phenomenal. It's a phenomenal piece of art. Um, the album is called No Need to Argue. Um, it was indeed at the time one of the most impactful albums, uh, topping the Billboard Modern Rock Tracks chart. Uh, Triple J listeners had it as number one in Australia. It went to number one in Belgium, Denmark, France, Germany, Iceland. It won Best Song Award at the MTV Europe Music Awards. Um, And it just, to this day, is still used in at least one, if not two or three major commercial campaigns every year on television. It's featured prominently on movie soundtracks. and I don't think any of that has to do with what happened outside of the artistic nature of the song, just feeling timeless. So zombie, a big hit in 1994. Um, and we had some other great bands. Uh, the next one that I saw on the list here and uh, is a classic from the beastie boys sabotage, which I loved was featured in the 2009 star Trek film. <laughs> uh, also an iconic video by spike Jones, since we're talking about MTV I mean, who doesn't remember that sabotage video and the amazing beginning of what became uh, Spike Jones kind of owning MTV for a while because he also had uh, another banger of a video in 1994 for another band that came out of the gates just absolutely blasting. And that's Weezer with their debut album, which was self-titled, but we all affectionately refer to now as the Blue Album since they've become color-coded over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Buddy Holly was the other big video that Spike Jones had in 1994 that led the foundation for him to doing things like Jackass and, you know, bigger projects with Tony Hawk and the like as time went on. Yep. So, uh, you know, I, I got to be honest, I, I'm not a huge Weezer fan. I, I do. I do like some of the the, the big songs. I, I don't know a ton of songs by them, um, except for like the, the big hits. Uh, but I, I just, I don't know. There was something that just never really clicked with me in Weezer. Here's what I'll tell you. Pinkerton is probably my favorite Weezer album. And that is something that a Weezer snob would say. I get that. So come at me if you want to people go ahead leave some comments, leave some voice messages. I get it. I'm used to it. But for you, Jack, 
I would say that if there was ever going to be a Weezer album that I would urge you to listen to front to back that I think you would actually enjoy, it's this album. Um, this, to me, was Rivers Cuomo standing up and being like, hey, I'm this generation's Brian Wilson. Nice to meet you. My band's called Weezer. And man, like if there was ever uh, an artist that I would call like the modern Beach Boys, and I don't mean that in a sort of specifically like pet sounds or any era, but like when you think of the Beach Boys, you think of bouncy West Coast pop music. Sure. And that's what the Blue Album was. And yeah. it was just, it was just filled with hit after hit, after hit, whether it was the Sweater Song or Buddy Holly or Say It Ain't So. And to me, uh, there are so many songs on this album that could have been singles and are just as iconic. Like My Name is Jonas, The World Is Turning Left Me Here, Surf Wax America, Say It Ain't So, In the Garage, Holiday. I mean, this was kind of the template for pop rock going forward. Uh, and even to me, set the table for things like newfound glory in later years when pop punk started to take hold. Yeah. And you know, I'm not saying that it's bad by any means. It just never clicked with me. And I don't know if that's just because I'm a different generation and I didn't grow up in that time. Um, but yeah, I'll give it another listen. I, 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 I think, I think 30 year old Jack and Weezer's blue album are a good match. All right. Well, I'll give it another shot. It's been a while since I tried listening. I, I've never listened to the album all the way through. I will give it another shot and I'll report back next week. <laughs> You'll dig it. I promise. Now, if we're talking about big breakouts in 1994, we got to talk about Green Day because this was the year that Dookie dropped and talking about an album that had single after single after single, Dookie was it. Longview, Basket Case, Welcome to Paradise, When I Come Around are still four iconic classics. And they even released a fifth single called She, which many stations still place to this day. And of course, is still a staple in their live set. Uh, now, this wasn't their very first album. They did have an independent release prior to this called Kerplunk. But much like Nirvana in 1991, this was their major label release in the beginning of the true entity that we know as Green Day. Green Day is interesting to me, and I don't know if I'm the only one that feels this way, but I mean, 1994, I was four years old. I, I always thought growing up that Green Day was like a newer band. And when I say newer, I mean like band that came out around the time I was in my teen years. So that would have been the 2000s. I they always were still thought very of, relevant then. Exactly. And, and that's, that's the point I'm trying to make is that they did a really good job keeping up with the times and staying relevant 10 years after, you know, 10 to 15 years after when they really started coming onto the scene. And I think that says a lot about them. And the fact that they're still relevant to this day. Um, yeah. And, and here's the thing, man, I'm going to be brutally honest. If I never heard green day ever again, I'm not going to be sad about it, <laughs> but here's the thing. Billy Joe Armstrong, in my opinion, while he may have had his exploits and his drunken rampage in New Orleans on stage about being in Green Day, do you know? All right, dude, get over yourself. But the credit I will give him is he is one of the most underrated American songwriters of all time. The dude can write a hook. The dude knows what the word anthemic means. He is one of the most consistent live singers 
Like Billy Joe Armstrong is not given his due for sounding live like he does on the records more so than any other singer in the history of alternative music. I don't think there's any, I mean, we've all seen footage of like bad nights from, but Billy Joe is that dude that no matter how much liquor he had in him, he was still Billy Joe. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like the, the dude writes some bops can perform at a high level in while I wish they had evolved more musically and maybe gotten to a point where they didn't have to rely on being Green Day um, and really just kind of like let the, the Green Day guard down and did more of like a, hey, we're 50-year-old guys now record. You know what I mean? Like, right, right. That I might care more. But – I got to give them their due, man. Green Day has has really kept the world's attention for the better part of over 30 years. They have been a relevant artist for that long. And it started with this album, which, you know, at the time was kind of sort of like overlooked. Like Longview didn't connect the way Smells Like Teen Spirit did. It was Basket Case. So Green Day had a minor hit and then followed it up with a huge song in Basket Case, and then came back with another single that did okay, but wasn't Basket Case, and then released When I Come Around, which was the biggest single out of all of them. So, like, it, it almost, like, with it, with just the way they released the singles, which was, you know what I mean? Like, good, solid single, iconic classic, good, solid single, most iconic classic. I think what they took from this was that with Basket Case and When I Come Around, both being less punk rock, more simplistic, more to the point, uh, that they now had a formula to go by. Sure, sure. And I mean, I guess... uh... And, and, you know, some people behoove that. Some people are just like, oh, it's formulaic, it's Green Day. Yeah, cool, man. I get it. And I'm a little tired of it, too. But for a 13-year-old kid that just hears like uh, this new album that I can't say the title of because there's an F word in it, uh, again, you're almost you're 50-year-old. You're you know like get get out of it. You know what I mean? Like I, I get it. Like you want to still be punk rock, but you're 50 years old. You're not really punk rock anymore, man. Like dude has a, like a car collection. Yeah. How punk rock is that? You know what I mean? Like get out of here. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. I just like, I, I feel like as much as I adore his songwriting and how iconic he is as a, as a musician, I still kind of think he's a douchebag. So you're saying that bec- they never got out of the punk phase and you think they should have? No, I think, I, I think there's a difference between being punk rock because bad religion is roughly the same age, but green day had a shtick, which was the hair and the ties. And then there's always been like, you know, like these little in jokes and the, you know, the, the, the drummer's name is Trey cool. And he had like the hidden track on this album. And like, there's always been like these little, there, there was always like this playful nature to it that you thought they would grow out of. Okay. And they just never did. And it's they, just, they like, never grew up is what you're saying. Kind of, but like the, it's not like the joke was funny in 1994. I mean, it was, it was like, it was a dad joke before there were dad jokes, I guess, is the way I'm looking at it. I just... Okay. There is one band that grew out of that punk rock phase and evolved, and that one band is the Goo Goo Dolls. 
And I still am kind of cringing over the fact that last night on the Rockefeller Christmas tree lighting on NBC, they referred to them as a classic rock band. Well, they technically are, man. I know, I know, but it's like, come on, really? Like, that's like calling Green Day a classic rock band. They are. You really going to call Green Day a classic rock band? The, the cut and dry definition is once a rock song has reached 25 years, it is a classic rock song. We're, just, right I now, can't dude, go along We're talking that. about classic rock right now. But it's alternative. It is. It's classic alternative rock. You know what I mean? Like a great example of that, like not to completely and totally change gears on you, but like Pearl Jam released another album in 1994. It was called Vitology. Again, it went a few singles deep uh, and did not come up with nearly um, the, I mean, it definitely sold. Don't get me wrong, but like it didn't have the critical acclaim of the previous two this was the period in which Pearl Jam was still not doing music videos. They weren't, weren't really participating in that MTV culture. Uh, they had started to rally against Ticketmaster and decided to take all of the production and touring and ticket sales and all of that onto themselves. Uh, they had gone through uh, the, the loss of their drummer, Dave Abruzis, because he and Eddie clashed. It was a weird time to be Pearl Jam. And the biggest song off the album turned out to be a song that was never intentionally released as a single. And it was released uh, post hot. It was, it was Corduroy. So essentially the, the, the legit singles, the ones that they say were singles off of this album were spin, spin the black circle, not for you in immortality. Now, after all of those singles had happened in, I believe it was 1996 radio stations started playing Corduroy because Pearl Jam fans started like requesting Corduroy. It was okay. never like an official single off of uh, this album. Um, and it, it was an alternate take, which was the one that actually got released. It was a uh, little strange, you know, like, and, and to me, the other thing that I find very odd is that Better Man, although a huge radio staple was never officially released as a single by the label. It was just a song that everybody loved. It started getting played on the radio. And what's strange to me is that both of those songs, Corduroy and Better Man, weren't official singles, but are more likely to be heard at radio than any of the three official singles in Spin the Black Circle, Not For You, or Immortality. And I can't think of, I'll tell you right now, none of those three songs are in my library for scheduling music on 95X, but I do have the other two. You do have the other two. Yeah. And do you consider them classic rock? Yeah, hundred percent. So to answer your questions, maybe on green day, definitely on the Goo dolls and oh. definitely on Pearl jam. Oh, come on. Sorry, man. It's just how things work. And if we're talking about other rock oriented modern rock bands from this era that definitely were post Pearl Jam bands. Uh, there's a great single from Collective Soul called Shine off their album, Hints, Allegations, and Things Left Unsaid. Uh, in addition to that, another Seattle band named Candlebox existed, uh, taking their sort of also Seattle 
take on grunge to the masses and a, a little band called live with their second album throwing copper which connected with a multitude of singles including selling the drama i alone and of course the iconic lightning crashes uh one of the only charting rock songs of all time to include the word placenta really yeah the placenta falls to the floor oh okay all right yeah now now it now it's coming back to me. Well, that uh, Collective Soul, uh, Shine by Collective Soul is one of my favorites. Uh, always loved that song. Um, I mean, there's I wouldn't, I would, I would expect that to be. I mean, there's a lot really? of similarities in, yeah, oh yeah, dude. They're, they, they were referred to multiple times uh, early in their career as a modern version of the Eagles. No. Yeah. Wow. I, yeah. I don't know if I see it, but I mean, I'll take your word for it. I do like, I, I like the song. It was, it was the songwriting and the arrangements. Okay. See, that's way uh, over my head. Again, I, 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 all right, maybe the arrangements I would hear, but again, lyrics, they just go right over my head. Dixon schools Jack on an album he's never heard before. It's Alternative 101 on the Roots of Alternative podcast. Yeah, so let's bring this into our new segment we like to call Alternative 101, where Dixon gives me a homework assignment, a, uh, an album that I've never heard before. Um, I give it a listen and then we kind of talk about it and I'll give it a rating and see if it's, if he actually does know what my tastes are and what I'm into. And this week I'm going to be listening to Ruby Vroom by Soul Coughing. Uh, the album released September 27th, 1994, uh, recorded at Sunset Sound Factory in Hollywood and sold approximately 70,000 copies as of April 1996, according to Billboard. Uh, yeah, Dixon, um, uh, this was an interesting album for me. I, I meant it to be because this was, for me, this was the album that laid the foundation for the truly alternative of what was to come in the 90s. This was, in my opinion, um, an important record for a lot of reasons. First and foremost, it was a successful album. Uh, I mean, 70,000 copies back in those days, especially physical copies, was a, a huge amount of records for a band like this, which was essentially like a jazz rap beat poetry. But this is where the artistic mindset of the underground was in 1994 you know like you can see it uh sort of satirized on saturday night live or in movies like so i married an axe murderer but this was a real movement and what i loved about this was how much it threw back to influential albums like paul's boutique to start to encourage this generation to mess around with samples and sounds and really trying to capture a uh, true authenticity to the what I consider to be like the the integral part of making a personal record. So like it's cool because there's loops on here, like we mentioned earlier. Raymond Scott's Powerhouse on Bust to Beelzebub, which is one of my favorite songs on the album. But uh, Down to This would be my favorite one on the album. You grab the ankles, I'll grab the wrists. It's such a <laughs> diabolical song, but it has great samples from Toots and the Maytals. Howlin' Wolf, the Andrews Sisters, the Roaches. Uh, there's something from Mark Antony later on in the record uh, when he samples those orchestral horns in Screenwriters Blues. Uh, but then there's also stuff that, that lends itself well to 
uh, what was happening in the uprising world of ska, uh, which also gave us sort of that rockabilly thing that was happening at the time with Brian Setzer's resurging, things like Big Bad Voodoo Daddy, which would break in the following year. Uh, in, in things like Zoot Suit Riot and the advent of the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones. This was sort of like, for me, what set the tone for all of that. Um, and then just taking into account like subtle little things, like one of my absolute favorite things is the fact that like uh, Mike Dowdy, who goes by M. Dowdy, is the singer, sort of the, the genius behind this, uh, talked his, his girlfriend into supplying the female voice on Janine. And in knowing that she wasn't like a singer, knew that there was a way around it to make it sound the way he wanted, regardless of her tone, and sent her to a payphone to <laughs> sing that rendition of Lemon Tree um, with this odd melody into their answering machine, thus using and, and totally abusing the phone system's technologies of compressing vocal. Huh. That's pretty you cool. Know, so like for me, it's just really cool to know the, the intricacies. And I, I love um, that like there was just so many ad lib things that happened on this record that turned out to be magic that ended up being kept and became integral parts of the sounds. Um, you know, Chad Blake is the producer of this album, deserves a, a lot of credit as well. Um, he did this thing where he stuck this binaural head-shaped microphone in front of the drum kit and then stuck another microphone in a car muffler called the bone. Uh, it was a two ended muffler from the times. Uh, and then <laughs> used that within uh, the actual studio premise as well to gain a certain clankiness and reverberation that ended up becoming uh, just an integral part of what that record sounded like. Uh, he went out of his way to sing into like these really cheap amp systems called Ahua, uh, which are like a straight from India brand of like, essentially at the time they were for like, you would put them on an ice cream truck and you'd have like the walkie talkie and it would be like that sort of quality. But that's what he was going for. He wanted this to be dissonant in some ways, anthemic in others, infectious with hooks. Um, in, in ultimately, I love the fact that there's this macabre, dark nature to this record while it's still something that you want to kind of shake your hips to the entire time. Yeah, you know, you echo a lot of what I was thinking with this. Uh, this album was was different from what I, it was very different from what I've, I normally listen to. Um, I didn't think it was bad by any means. Um, there was just a lot going on. I loved how there was, I don't know if it was like, if there was political tones to it or not, but there, like, like screenwriters blues, for instance, there was a lot of commentary going on in that song. And I couldn't quite understand everything that was being said. Because again, I, I don't right off the bat, listen to the lyrics. I kind of listen to the groove of the song and the rhythm and how it sounds and I like I loved how the song was arranged, and it was interesting as to what they were talking about. Though I'm still not 100 percent sure what they were talking about in that song. That's a, a big part of where the the beat poetry comes in. Is it's sort of in an odd way, 
and I know I'm going to take flack for this, but it, 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 it's a lot like just like the, the freestyle hip hop kids. It's what's on your mind. What sounds good phonetically? Are you impassioned? Mm-hmm. Like, do you truly mean this? And, and a lot of times some of the best beat poetry didn't necessarily make sense, but still made you feel something. Yeah. 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 Overall, I I felt that this album broke down a lot of barriers and challenged a lot of norms. And I, you know, to be honest, I'm surprised that I'd never really heard of it before. Was this song or was this uh, uh, band ever featured on radio? Yes. Uh, they had a 1996 album called Irresistible Bliss, which spawned the legendary single Super Bon Bon. Oh, I know that song. Yeah. Okay. All right. I, I didn't realize it was these guys. Okay. Yeah. See, we're this making connections a, here. Okay. See? Okay. All right. There's a all purpose right. to we're all getting this. There. We're getting there. Now, there were a couple songs I really enjoyed. So I, I've, got, I've got three songs here that I really enjoyed on the album. Uh, first being Moon Sammy. And I just love the name of it. It's just, it's, it's just an interesting name. Um, I, I really love the bass line in True Dreams of Wichita. Um, and it kind of made me think about um, uh, planes, trains, and automobiles because I just watched that last week and, you know, how they land in Wichita and they're stuck there. So I don't know. Maybe that's why uh, it was just stuck in my head for some reason. But it was a great song. Love the bass line. And then the song that uh, it was uh, uh, number two on the album, Sugar Free Jazz. I'm listening through it. I always start from, from top to finish. From the very beginning of that song, I'm like, oh, my God. This is you too. Uh, it sounded so much like Into the Heart off the Boy album. Um, and it, the, the guitar riff in that song sounded very Edge-like. And that, that was my favorite on the album. Sugar Free Jazz was the big single off this record. It was everybody's favorite song. Even when Irresistible Bliss came out and Super Bon Bon was like the big single, this was still the song that they ended live sets with. Oh, okay. Okay. Do you get what I'm saying there with the edge like guitar riff? Oh, absolutely. I mean, and you've also I actually went back and I listened to into the heart again off the boy album. Cause it's such a great song. And this reminded me of that. And I think the edge coming off of 1993 in his performance with numb became more visible. So I think that there might actually be a connotation there where, because Edge stepped out front, did that to numb that maybe, you know, Mike Dowdy went back, was inspired to check out some of the early U2 stuff. Mm. I'm not going to say it's not an influence. Yeah. Yeah. You never know. So overall, I would give this one a six out of 10. I, I did enjoy it. And it kind of, it was a good, um, I guess, uh, it whet the appetite for me to look into more ska music. Cause I, I do like ska. Um, I, I wouldn't say I've listened to it as much as other stuff, but uh, it's definitely opened more doors for me. Yeah, this is most certainly not a ska record. It is something that I think inspired ska to be able to be accepted. Gotcha. Because okay. this, this is much more of a an avant jazz thing. Uh, but I think that the use of horns uh, sort of set up the listener's ear to be more accepting of something that at the time was still considered like a band nerd instrument. But also in the same time period of 1994, 1995, there was a band called the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones that was setting Boston on fire in the entire yeah. Northeast. Uh, I distinctly remember, and I don't remember what show I went to, 
but I went to a show at Water Street Music Hall, which at the time was called the Horizontal Boogie Bar. We went to a show. It was a Wednesday night. The next night, the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones played, and so many people showed up, and the energy was so frenetic that they busted through the floor. <laughs> what? Oh, but did everybody get hurt? I think some people got hurt, but nothing like catastrophic. I think it was just a lot, a lot of sprained ankles, maybe a Jeez. broken foot here or there. Holy crap. <laughs> but yeah, this was, uh, this was part of, I think, that. And I, I also think that, like, you know, this was the, the sort of around the same time period that, like, uh, Diggable Planets was, was making some headway with their jazz-influenced version of hip-hop that also bled over into the alternative scene. We got to give you a homework assignment for next week first. Yeah, what do we got coming up next week? What's, what's on my list? Oh, next week, 1995. Uh, it was difficult for me to pare this down because I had two or three that I really wanted to give you. But I decided, based on what you've told me about um, your history with music and me knowing what it is that your wife has a tendency to listen to and some of the bands that she plays for you, I decided to go with an album from Hum called You'd Prefer an Astronaut. I'm already intrigued because it's got the astronaut in there. Um, To me, this is the band that set the table for the majority of bands that were what would be considered like Warp Tour-esque from 1998 through about 2003. Okay. Okay. So like... Uh, this, the big single on the album that's iconic, everybody knows, is Stars, but the album as a whole is just a masterpiece and inspired everybody from Taking Back Sunday to Thursday to At the Drive-In, Sparta, the Mars Volta, um, and so many other things that then influenced a further generation of bands like All Time Low. Uh, Blink-182 definitely took some hum influence, and you'll hear that in Travis Barker's drumming. Um, mm. you know, even things that, that were very popular here, like the Sheila divine were, mm. um, you know, would not have been possible without there being this particular album from hum. Awesome. Well, I'm excited to check that out next week when we do 1995, uh, for alternative 101. All right. So as we jump back into the hits of 1994, we touched on this last week, so I don't want to spend a ton of time on it this week, but, uh, since we did kind of give some love to collective soul Candlebox, and live, uh, I didn't want to lump STP stone temple pilots into that because this was the year that they really broke out of that with their album purple as evidenced by their very different sounding singles from the songs off core. The singles include big empty Vaseline and interstate love song, three songs still iconic to the format. I don't want to take too much time to focus on them because we all know about STP, but if you were to, be of the opinion that they deserve to be lumped into grunge. I would urge you to go back and check this album out along with 1996's Tiny Music, Songs from the Vatican Gift Shop, and I would guarantee that you'll change your mind about that. Now, another album that came out in 1994 that I think really deserves a little bit of attention because this was, to me, where industrial music started to have a foothold at radio and inspire heavier music. Uh, and that was the Nine Inch Nails album, The Downward Spiral, which spawned the iconic single Closer, which we all know because of the wonderful vulgarness of its context, which is I want to like an animal. Uh, you're familiar with it, but this was the follow-up to their Pretty Hate Machine album, which we covered in 1989. And it was the first collaboration 
uh, between Trent Reznor and the producer known as Flood. Uh, this was also the first thing that uh, was recorded inside Reznor's new studio. Um, it was, uh, he called it Lay Pig. It was essentially in a house where uh, actress Sharon Tate was murdered by members of the Manson family. The other singles on this were March of the Pigs uh, and, of course, Piggy. This was also where the song Hurt came from, which was a single much later on after the album came out and Closer ran its course. Uh, of course, we all know the song. Probably uh, most of us know it as the Johnny Cash cover as opposed to the original Nine Inch Nails version, uh, but an iconic song nonetheless, and Nine Inch Nails shaped an entire generation of industrial music, and we'll touch on that a little bit more in the coming years as well. Now, an album... Uh, that came out in 1993, that dropped a whole bunch of singles in 1994, and even into 1995, uh, is August and Everything After from Legendary Counting Crows. And Mr. Jones was released the second week of December, which in modern days would be not something that happens because there isn't new music released <laughs> to radio pretty much after Thanksgiving. Uh, but they did drop Mr. Jones second week of December, 1993. It didn't catch until 1994. And then they followed it up with another smash with round here, a minor single with rain King. And they even went to the well for a fourth time in 1995, releasing a single called a murder of one counting crows an iconic band from the time. But again, probably a little bit more, on the pop side of things. Really? Uh, I definitely do consider them more <laughs> alternative. I mean, yeah, they, they did play on pop radio, uh, but I mean, August and everything after just such a great album from start to finish. And to me, like it, it, it definitely sounds more alternative to me. Yeah. I'm just, I, my, my whole thing with them being more of a pop artist is where they went after this. Uh, okay. Okay. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think that they saw themselves as an alternative band after this album and tried to be like that pop rock Matchbox 20 thing. Where like, Is that why they go on tour with Matchbox 20? I think that's part of it. It's because they lump themselves in with the more mainstreamy post Bon Jovi stuff than they do the alternative scene. I'm not mm. really sure why. Um, <clears throat> and I mean, I will now, say this too. Matchbox 20 is one of my favorite bands. <laughs> that doesn't surprise me. I don't know if I'd consider them pop, though. Well, here, here's the thing: is I don't mean to go like off Matchbox on a tangent 20, here. <laughs> no, it's okay. But like Matchbox Twenty, like after the first single, their second single were released to CHR and rock, modern rock radio at the same time. So okay. it was just one of those things where they didn't spend much time in the the niche world before they became this mainstream and this was also a time period where things would open up mainstream you know boy yeah. bands were were starting to become a prevalent thing again and you know pop radio was changing right okay yeah i get what um, you're saying <clears throat> another huge album from 1994 for me and i won't spend a lot of time on it because we just did in 1992 but my girl tori amos released another album called under the pink which spawned a couple of great singles um you know, the, the ones that everybody probably remembers the best are God and Cornflake Girl. Uh, Jawbox, of course, famously covered Cornflake Girl in 1995 and had more success with it than they did. Uh, the one thing I would like to touch on since we just talked about Nine Inch Nails is one of my favorite Tori Amos performances of all time is her collaboration with Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails for a song called Pass the Mission, which does appear on this album. Oh, wow. 
And then, uh, you know, a, a song that I, I think Jack is well aware of because it's been covered quite a bit uh, and is also a staple at Alternative Radio is Fade Into You by Mazzy Starr. That's a great song. Wait, are, that song is a cover or it's been covered by other artists? It's been covered so many times by other artists for use in TV, film, commercials. But Mazzy Starr did the original. Mazzy Starr did the original on an album called So Tonight That I Might See, which if you are ever depressed, I urge you to go and get that album and put it on. And you can just wallow for hours with that thing. <laughs> now, there was one name on this list that I was going to ask you about. Sarah McLaughlin was on this list. She had a song yeah. called Possession. I never yeah. really thought of Sarah McLaughlin as alternative, but I guess I can kind of see it. This was also a period where there wasn't a AAA format. Um, and she was adult at the time, album alternative. If you're not a radio <clears throat> or just adult alternative for those of us that don't want to be snobs about it, Jack. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, there, you, you say AAA, you think there's three A's there. Got to explain. The yeah, other I know. I know. I know. Um, but yeah, uh, this was during the height of the Lilith fair and the, the female empowerment through alternative music. And while I don't necessarily think that her sound was specifically alternative, um, I think there was enough support for her from this part of the world with her taking some of these alternative bands like the Indigo Girls and uh, you know other female-oriented artists like Meredith Brooks in later years over to the Lilith Fair stage and giving them a platform to play on. What is Lilith Fair? <clears throat> Lilith Fair was uh, an all-female music festival, mostly alternative artists. It existed mm. for a few years uh, in the early to mid-90s. Did Alanis Morissette ever play Lilith Fair? I've got to assume so. Because I am really excited for 1995 because I know, I think it's 95, we're going to be seeing Alanis Morissette very soon. I absolutely love Alanis Morissette. Well, that's where we're going to have to agree to disagree. Uh, oh, Jack. no! <clears throat> um, I'm, All right. more of an Ani, I'm more of an Ani DeFranco guy. So I'm, I'm looking forward to 1995 as well because we'll be able to talk about a female artist you like and then I'll talk about a better female artist that I like. Okay, well, all right. To, to you know, not take sides here. I have I'm not familiar with the artist you just mentioned, so maybe I'll have to go back and listen to some of that. She from Buffalo. Who was it again? Ani DeFranco. She's from Buffalo. Yeah, she has. A, she actually owns a venue out there now. Me, I, that must be why her name sounds so familiar. Like I, I'm, yeah. I'm not familiar with the music, but the name does sound very familiar. And I'll tell you straight up, in a fist fight, Ani would whoop her. Oh, oh come on now. No, there's no way. <laughs> no. But here's the one thing about Alanis Morissette that I do love is she was fantastic in the show Weeds. Loved her in Weeds. Mm. Well, we're going to be talking a lot about Alanis Morissette and Ani DeFranco coming up next week when we talk about 1995. And personally, that was a big year for me because that, I think, you know, you, you think back to... Uh, your earliest memories 1995 was I think the earliest memory that I have in my uh, 30 years of existence because that was the year uh, my parents sister and I took a road trip across the country to California to visit my brother and uh, I, I do remember uh, many parts of that trip um, and so yeah it was a good year cognitive and memories <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so in parting from 1994, two last singles I want to mention. 
were from a Canadian folk rock group called the Crash Test Dummies. The oh, song yeah. is called Mm-mm, Mm-mm. And no, that's not a Campbell's Soup commercial. And yeah, the record is weird. And I, I have to admit that I spent a lot of time with this record. And I don't really remember why. The album's called God Shuffled His Feet. It's a weird one. Uh, if you feel like, I don't know, feeling awkward by yourself for <laughs> 58 minutes and 33 seconds, go check this record out. Uh, and then the other one that I wanted to bring a little of attention to, uh, because we're going to do it with Radiohead in the coming days, but uh, 1994 spawned a single off a 1993 album called Transmissions from the Satellite Heart from a band called The Flaming Lips. Mm. Now, this was much like uh, what we had discussed before with Radiohead, a little bit different than what you know now of the band. This was their first real major label release. And then with their next album, which we'll get to in 1996, they change and they become the Flaming Lips that you now. But this is a great uh, sort of look into their psychedelic rock, noise rock, um, sort of Brian Jonestown Massacre era of the Flaming Lips. Go back and check it out. Uh, that album is very cool. And if you like She Don't Use Jelly, you'll like the record. And if you don't like the song, you'll probably hate the record. Hmm. All right. Well, that's one we'll, we'll add to the list. Check it out. We'll talk about it next week. Oh, man. So much that we covered in 1994. Is there anything we missed? Probably. Well, if, uh, if there was, you can actually go see the entire playlist um, and check out some of the songs that we didn't mention because uh, there's just so many of them. Uh, we don't have time for every single one. So check it out uh, right up at our page, 95x.com slash roots of alternative. And next week, as mentioned, we'll be checking out 1995. Uh, got a preview for some artists for 95? Uh, 1995, a banner year. As we talked about, you get Alanis Morissette with Jagged Little Pill. PJ Harvey drops a banger called To Bring You My Love. Radiohead starts their evolution by releasing a new album called The Bends. You get the double album Insanity of Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness from the Smashing Pumpkins and so much more, including Jack's Alternative 101 homework assignment. And yeah, next week, Alternative 101, I'll be checking out the band Hum, the album you'd prefer an astronaut. I uh, can't wait to check that out and uh, listen to some uh, really great tunes from 1995. So join us next week. Uh, as always, you can check out every past show up on our page, 95x.com slash Roots of Alternative, on Apple Podcasts, and on Spotify, uh, as well as our bonus episodes. Dixon, we'll talk to you next week again with 1995. Can't wait. I can't wait either, my man. We'll talk to you then. All right, and we'll talk to you as well next time on the Roots of Alternative podcast for 95X. Thank you.